Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Look, there's a big difference between a campaign where it is, pay, it is a private venue using private funds and a government entity. And I think we have a respect for the press when it comes to the government that that is something that you can't ban an entity from you know, conservative, liberal, or otherwise, I think that's what makes a democracy a democracy versus a dictatorship. A few days ago, I called the fake news the enemy of the people, and they are. Apparently, this is how they retaliate when you report facts they don't like. This White House does not seem to value an independent press. There is a word for that line of thinking. The word is un-American. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Trumpcast is the place where the media, that's Trump's opposition party, parties. Kind of parties like a funeral party, like an Irish wake party. Today I'm talking to Nicole Hammer, one of my favorite writers in any number of characters. At book length, she's written Messengers of the Right, an extraordinary book about the rise of the far right that in Bannon's America is more relevant than ever. At article length, She's a contributing editor for Opinion at U.S. News. And at 140 characters, Nicole captains the Past Pundit Twitter feed, which is just ingenious. So in lieu of John D. Domenico reading in his inimitable way Donald Trump's tweets, I'm going to try my hand at a Nicole Hemmer impersonation. I mean, I can't really do her awesome voice, but I do want to read her latest multi-part tweet storm from earlier today. She's responding to the argument that cautions Democrats against patronizing or vilifying Trump's voters. They're not bad people, the argument goes. They're just afraid. Here's what Nicole tweeted. If someone does something bad, even out of an understandable fear, isn't the first step to regaining their good person card regret? But that's not what has happened. Trump voters are still overwhelmingly Trump supporters. If a Trump voter feels bad, and plenty don't, it's not because of liberals. They feel bad because they know they've done something wrong. They don't like vocal anti-Trump people because anti-Trumpers constantly remind them they did something wrong. That they made a choice to sacrifice the safety and well-being of millions of people and endanger our constitutional system. By all means offer a path to reconciliation, but that path runs through some sort of recognition that they made a selfish, harmful choice. Absent that, it's not clear to me why we're talking about the essential goodness of Trump voters. A sign that you're good? You admit when you've done something bad. (music) 
I just love the simplicity of these eight tweets. And I really look forward to having Nicole here to talk about this argument and her column this week in U.S. News. Today, I'm talking to Nicole Hammer. She's a contributing editor for Opinion at U.S. News. Nicole, I'm so glad to have you here. So happy to be here. I want to talk to you about two things. First is your column in U.S. News this week about Mike Pence. And then I want to talk to you about Trump supporters about whom you have tweeted eloquently and more recently earlier today. (laughs) So first, Vice President Mike Pence. He's just one impeachment, I mean, heartbeat away from the presidency. (laughs) What has he been doing as VP? Well, at first, it didn't seem like he was doing a whole lot. There was a sense in the first few weeks of the administration that he was somewhat on the outside looking in, that Trump was really leaning on those people who he had long been close to, like Steve Bannon, even like Reince Priebus and Michael Flynn. And over the past week or so, it seems that the balance of power has shifted somewhat. And I think that Flynn has been really important to understanding why that's happening. When General Flynn misled or lied to Mike Pence, it wasn't automatic that Donald Trump was going to turn on Flynn and actually fire him. That wasn't something that necessarily was going to happen. Even as Donald Trump talks about Flynn now, he doesn't do so in a way that suggests that he was eager to get rid of Flynn. But when he did, he did so because Pence was quite upset about being misled and then going out and lying to the press. But I actually think this this incident did two things. One, it allowed Pence to gain some power. He had a say in picking H.R. McMaster as the new national security advisor. And that's important because it means that there's someone who's more on Pence's page than Flynn was. But Pence also was able to kind of distance himself from some of the potential scandals of the administration because he clearly wasn't in the inner circle when it came to what Flynn was doing with Russia. Yeah, when we get to the uh, the Russia question of who who knew and when, yeah, Pence is, is out of the loop. I mean, first it's he was lied to and that's a disgrace for him. But then it's he was lied to and that means he has some moral authority. That's right. Moral authority. And also um, when and if investigations ever start, he can point to this moment and be like, look, I didn't know what was going on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was out of the loop for two weeks longer than the president. Yeah. So tell me about um, his and I want to come back a little bit to his moral authority. But tell me about um, Pence's European tour. It was just a surprise to see him at Dachau when we had just heard Trump asking that the a reporter in Akipa to sit at the conference and dodging questions about anti-Semitic attacks. Right. I mean, in many ways, this was the presidential pivot of the administration, but it was coming from Pence himself, yeah. where Trump is avoiding these charges of anti-Semitism, refusing to denounce anti-Semitism. Here is Pence at Dachau walking through this concentration camp with a survivor, where Trump is beating up on NATO and has these questionable ties to Russia. Here's Pence, you know, telling the NATO allies that they need to pay a little bit more money, but also reassuring them that the U.S. has their back. And to have the vice president be sort of the grown up in the room when that's not usually the role that they play has been really interesting to see. He's really modeling what a Pence presidency might look like. And for people who are pretty uneasy with the Trump presidency, this can be both reassuring, but also sort of making the case in case there uh, is a, a vacancy up top. <laughs> well, speaking of that, 
I'm sure you've seen this. You you and I spend a fair amount of time on Twitter. There's a court intrigue <laughs> that's been proposed in many quarters, some of them dubious, including one of my favorite alt government accounts that's at Rogue Poda staff. And I'm only naming it with this caution caveat to listeners. Rogue Poda staff should be read as fiction and commentary and not as reporting until further notice. But Rogue Poda staff loves this idea that Pence might be angling and conspiring to take over, maybe with Ryan and Priebus. Uh, not an outright mutiny, but an impeachment once their constituencies feel that their so-called red line has been crossed or that they're mad enough about, say, Russia to allow Pence to come in as a steady hand and maybe even initiate a exercise of the 25th Amendment, find him unfit to serve. I'm welcoming your speculation here. Well, I, I don't think we need to speculate that it's anything conspiratorial, just covering all of your bases. I mean, Trump is a very unusual president and somebody who has opened himself up to a lot of speculation about impeachment. Now, impeachment for a party has traditionally been very damaging. So I don't think it's something that the Republicans are are looking forward to. It's something that they might be preparing for. Mm -hmm. But also they have a lot of control over this issue, right? They control the Congress. And so impeachment, 25th Amendment stuff, I feel like all of that is largely... For liberals, it sort of operates as your magic weight loss pill. Like, yeah, if we yeah. just take this, this will free us of the Trump problem, when really it's that that diet and exercise that does it. It's that <sighs> yeah. daily, boring, hard work of democratic participation and citizenship that is actually going to thwart or stop some of Trump's more outlandish desires as president, not impeachment or the 25th Amendment. That said, I think that the Republicans are also aware that there's a lot they don't know about Trump. There's a lot they don't like about Trump. And when the mutual convenience of their partnership no longer is mutually convenient, then I would say they're probably considering exit ramps. Well, and I, yeah, I love this point that there's a tendency among liberals to think of that, yeah, as this escape hatch that could happen. Maybe we only have another year at the midterms. We'll get that impeachment. Well, we've we seen can pretend this never happened. <laughs> like it's right. denial. Well, we've seen this magical thinking again and again and again. There was going to be an open convention. Donald Trump was going to be forced out after the Access Hollywood tape. There were going to be Hamilton electors who were going to overturn yes, right. the election. in Wisconsin. Over and over and over again. And it's a way of, I don't know, if you spend too much time thinking that's your out, then you don't have to do the hard work of actually being a participant in governing and in sort of working in your own communities to stop the worst effects of this president. I think it's better to, you know, stop taking the magic weight loss mm -hmm. pills go hit the gym, go eat your vegetables and, and do that kind of thing. <laughs> and speaking of that, the idea of hard work and drudgery in government, I was curious about whether Trump might ever go to Camp David. He probably won't. I don't think he's up for mosquitoes and shuffleboard. And he has Mar-a-Lago. But, um, you know, the founding of Camp David, or at least what Eisenhower said about Camp David, is that it was a place to go to escape the drudgery not the stress of being president, but the drudgery of being president. And coming back to Pence, Pence does seem willing, as you point out, to embrace the drudgery. I mean, for one, he he knows what he's doing. Um, right. And, uh, and you say that this reverses, in some ways, the traditional 
role playing between the president and the vice president. Right. If you think about, let's take our favorite president, Richard Nixon, um, when he was vice president under Dwight Eisenhower, he was the administration attack dog, right? He was the guy who could go out there and say the things that were too beneath the president to actually say. And when Nixon was in office, Spiro Agnew played that role, right? Nixon couldn't go hard at the media in quite the same way that Spiro Agnew could. Agnew could really let loose. But there are no constraints with Donald Trump, right? There is no thing that's out of bounds or too unpresidential for him to say or do. In many ways, it's it's Pence who's doing the kind of presidential things. And we heard a little bit of this when the campaign was still going on before Pence was chosen, when it came to John Kasich being offered or being felt out for yeah, the the running mate role. Remind me of that. Didn't didn't Donald Trump Jr. come into the picture? That's right. So Donald Trump Jr. called up one of Kasich's aides to kind of feel him out for this uh, this running mate position. And he offered to make Kasich the most powerful vice president mm. in American history. Huh. Right. He could take care of domestic policy and he could take care of foreign policy. And so what was the president going to do? If Kasich or, or a vice president was going to run the government. Well, the president was going to make America great again. Branding. I mean, it's incredible. That's right. well, and if you think about what Donald Trump has been doing while in office, he hasn't spent a whole lot of time in the weeds of domestic or foreign policy. He's been doing a lot of going back to the hustings, going back yeah. out and campaigning, holding rallies. That's what he likes. That's what fills him back up. And so really, that is kind of how things are breaking down. Mike Pence is doing the serious work and Donald Trump is going out and he is making America great again. Right. So the other thing I want to talk to you about is Trump voters, because there is, um, I don't think there's a time in American history that we haven't described the socius, the polity as being divided and fractious. So it's, or polarized even. But there's almost an anxiety. I remember this around the Iraq war when there were some people for it and against it. And you just, I don't know, you just wanted to tiptoe around it. It's really not just politics. It's become a moral difference between Trump voters and supporters. And obviously, there's some Trump regretters, but mostly Trump voters and supporters are one and the same. And those who really fear this presidency and, you know, are furious and are marching against it. What do you make of, on the one hand, the argument that we ought to or that liberals ought to cultivate compassion for and understanding of of Trump voters and sort of feel their pain. And then on the other hand, Jamel Bowie, our Slate's own Jamel Bowie's argument that there are no good Trump voters, that they voted for a racist and, you know, with racist motivations and they've gotten what they asked for. Yeah, I'm actually more on Jamel's side on this. And this is coming from someone who knows and loves many Trump voters. I'm from Indiana. My family is very conservative. Um, most of my family voted for Trump. But in voting for Trump, voters were making a decision. They were saying that they might have been vo voting out of a, a very understandable fear. They may be coming from a place of uncertainty about what their futures look like, but they made a decision to trade the safety and the futures of millions of immigrants, of Americans who were directly attacked during the Trump campaign and saying their safety and their security and their futures are less important than mine. And look, all politics has winners and losers, but oftentimes 
the people who are hurt by policies aren't that's not trumpeted as a good thing that comes out of this. I mean, the the difference with Trump is that he spent his time on the campaign trail saying, I'm going to hurt these people. That's the point of my policies. Come along with me. And people came along with him. You know, people can't say they didn't know that he was going to do this because it was the underpinning of his campaign. I've I've seen you say on Twitter, and this is, I think, very powerful and succinct, Trump's campaign was premised on, quote, doing harm. Harm was a feature and not a bug. This is the whole thing, that this was meant to be. Well, that's exactly be, right. You know, Nick Kristoff has a, has a column that's very different from Jamel's about sympathy for the, for the Trump voter. He's particularly interested in their, their vote as, and their support for Trump as, as fearful. It seems like at least the axis on which I can get compassion. And I should say, I find practically intolerable the idea of being alienated from that, that many Americans. And so I spend a long, a lot of mental energy finding what I have in common with them. And I can't say that I never feel like prosecuting someone that I think is responsible for my, quote, pain. I don't love that side of me. But the anger of Trump supporters is now the inheritance of liberals who hold Trump responsible for, for all, quote, our pain. Hearing liberals talk about bloodthirstily about impeachment or even sometimes assassination is pretty amazing. Right. I think that there's a lot of different there are a lot of different things going on there. So first of all, I think anyone talking about assassination is really pulling themselves out of the realm of of reasonable conversation. Yeah. Obviously, this should go without saying. Impeachment is a political process. And so I can certainly understand people longing for that. Then when it comes to Trump voters themselves, I think that the access for understanding Trump voters is their fear. And I understand that. I mean, we all feel fear. And I think all of us have done bad things based on fear. It's an incredibly powerful emotion that easily overrides our value systems. So I'm not even saying that it is alien, their sense of fear or their decision to do something that hurts other people out of that fear. But Kristoff is making the argument that their fear exculpates them, that it exonerates them, that it doesn't make them not good people. And my only argument is that a mark of a good person is that when you do something bad out of fear, at some point you have to recognize that and admit that you've done something that wasn't great and apologize for it. And I think that that is the necessary step before liberals or anti-Trumpers say, it's okay, you're a good person. I feel like Trump voters have to demonstrate that they understand the harm that they've caused. I mean, that feels like the, the path toward reconciliation. And so it's not about saying these people are irreparably bad. I do think that there's a, a category error when we focus on the inherent goodness or badness of a person versus the goodness or the badness of their actions. Yeah, I think that's right. We might be even able to bring this back to Pence before we wrap up, which is that Pence is does seem to have a robust moral life and conscience, and he is less impulsive. And he may, you know, he has clearly made a pact with Trump and maybe believes, yes, that this alliance will help him with some of the things he feels strongly about. I mean, he's a religious man. He's not rudderless. But that there may be even an element of atonement in his going to Dachau, say, of, you know, at least trying to set the record straight that he's 
that he's not Donald Trump. Well, and we saw this, too, in the campaign when the Access Hollywood tape came out. And I think there was some very well-sourced reporting on the agony that that caused Pence because this was so far from the things that he believed in. And, you know, Pence has always said he's a Christian first, a conservative second, a Republican third. I will say that I, I put Pence in very much the same category, though, as these Trump voters. Pence has a value system, but it is a value system that he compromised by partnering with Donald Trump. He knew as well as anyone who Trump was and what he stood for. And I think that while Pence looks amazing next to Trump, he looks presidential, he looks moral, he looks upstanding. We can't forget that there is a a corruption at the heart of his political position today as vice president, which is that he set aside all of those values in order to partner with someone who shares none of them. And that matters a great deal when we evaluate where Pence fits into all of this, because partnering with Trump doesn't strike me as something that advances one's Christian, conservative, or I think ultimately in the long run, Republican identity. I think that's right. There's a lot now of compromise on Pence. (laughs) (laughs) That's Um, one way to look at it. (laughs) Thank you very, very much for being here, Nicole. We're going to have you back. It's really, really great to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I listen to the show all the time. I absolutely love it. And I would be happy to be back at any time. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast is produced by Jason DeLeon. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Andy Bowers is Panoply's chief content officer. And John D. Domenico reads the 45th president's tweets. And I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Thank you.